Jonah chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king of, and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw all that they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he said would he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as we approach this month, October 31st is sort of the date we celebrate, but it's going to be 506 years that the Protestant Church celebrates the Reformation, uh, an important time for us. Uh, we, we celebrate uh, a key distinct of what, it, of what it really means to follow God. Followers of God throughout time have been those who actively turn uh, away from rebellion uh, both outward and inward rebellion, and they do an about face. Followers of God do a 180. Instead of rebelling against God, they begin to walk in step with him. Martin Luther knew that this was key. Martin Luther knew that the key to, to the Christian walk with God was repentance. The folklore is that with a hammer in hand and, and nails in hand, he grabbed up his 95 thesis and he went and nailed it to the Wittenberg Castle door. Much like you would go down to the town square. Much like we would go on Facebook and post something or on Twitter and post something. He posted his 95 thesis, 95 points, 95 grievances he had with the church. And this German monk, he was not looking to replace the Catholic church. He was desiring to see it reformed, to see it get healthy. And many people would have quickly run up to this list, and the very first thing they would have read was this. The first line of the 95 Thesis reads, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, He willed that the entire life of believers would be one of repentance. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. 
Well then, what Luther is arguing, and I would bring before you this morning, all of Scripture is really arguing, making it clear that you cannot pray a quick prayer or make a snap decision for God and then begin to go your own way, live in your own path. But rather, the Christian life is a life that continues, continues to walk in repentance, continuing today to turn from our sin, continuing today to believe in God's word, trusting in faith that he is faithful to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. This is a whole life repentance. This morning's sermon title is entitled Repentance. Because it is a key theme for the book of Jonah. And honestly, it's, a, it's really the theme of chapter 3. Now, this never happens. So i got to share this with you. This, this week, I'm sitting out. And often as I do, I'll have a, you know, a legal pad. Or maybe I'm on my Word doc. And I'm just kind of chicken scratching around trying to figure out the structure of the passage. And so I'm outlining things. Where does so-and-so talk? Where does somebody respond? What's the key words that are used here? What, what is the, uh, the, the progression of thought? What is trying to be revealed? And, and as I was structuring this passage, I thought, well, this is interesting. It is, it is as though, in essence, Jonah seems to repent here. And then I'm thinking, well, I write down, well, the Ninevites begin to repent. And then I was looking at verse 10 of chapter 3, and I said, This is weird. Maybe I shouldn't put this down, but I wrote it down. God seems to repent here. And so you could imagine that as I begin to later, I'm turning in one of the commentaries by Brian Estelle, and I notice some big, bold black letters. Jonah repents. Then a couple pages later, the Ninevites repent. Then a couple pages later, God repents. And so I'm thinking, maybe I'm onto something here. This almost never happens. So this morning, uh, the outline will be just as such. We'll be looking at Jonah's repentance, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Then we'll see the Ninevites repent, verses 4 through 9. And then we'll conclude by looking at God's repentance in verse 10. Now, first, Jonah's repentance. The whole, with, with the structure of this book being important to us, I, I don't want us to lose how this framing helps us understand what is going on here, how this is being communicated to us. I let you know right before the reading of the scripture that we are entering into the second half of the book, not just chapter-wise, but literally as this is outlined and structured. There are two clear sections of the book of Jonah, and both of these clear sections begin with the word of the Lord came to Jonah. You see that in chapter 1, verse 1, and you see it in chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. The book is cut in half. And in each section, section, we hear a call given to Jonah. We see that mercy is given. And then we see a response to that mercy. In chapter 1, we saw that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And, and then we see it here a second time. Important for us is to catch the word of the Lord that came to Jonah never changed. It wasn't in chapter one, the word of the Lord came and then something happened and now God's correcting and moving in a different direction. It is the word of the Lord came again to Jonah and the call on him was the exact same thing as it was in chapter one. Arise, go to Nineveh, call out against that great city for their evil has come up before me. 
And in chapter three, he says, I have a message for you to tell them now, go and do it. And, and if you think about it, just because Jonah went through this great up and down or more like down and out, nothing really had changed over in Nineveh. Just because Jonah went through his own sort of experience with God and judgment that happened in chapters one and two, Nineveh is still in the background. There's still an evil, wicked city who is, who is violent. And maybe when Jonah was spat out onto the shore, maybe some time had elapsed between the first calling and the second calling. Maybe it was a week. Maybe it was two months or three months. We don't know, but Nineveh still needed someone to come and call out against it. And so Jonah arose rather than to flee to Tarshish, like we saw in chapter one, he arises here to, to go to Nineveh. Chapter three, look at verse three. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, of course, a narrow reading of this book would leave you thinking, aha, finally, Jonah has come around. Jonah is repentant. He has a broken and contrite heart. And now he's got this deep love for the Lord that says, Lord, I love these people and I love you and I'm going to do whatever you say. But that's a very narrow reading. In contrast to Martin Luther's first thesis, Jonah, as this book includes, we will see he wasn't wholesomely, outwardly, and inwardly repentant. Oh, sure, we will see that he follows the Lord's instruction to declare this message of coming destruction, but he is angry with the Lord, and his heart is really not for the Ninevites. No, his heart is not in step with the Lord, and this will be very plain to us in chapter 4. And so then we ask, why say Jonah repented when he didn't really seem to have a deep-seated whole life repentance like Martin Luther's talking about? Why? Well, this is where I want to just ask you, church, take a step back with me for a moment and just ask, why do you believe we really have this book in the first place? Why is it that these short two or three pages in our Bibles are there? This little known prophet, we hardly know anything about him. His name only shows up once in the book of Second Kings chapter 14. And it leaves you thinking, in order for us to know all that happened here in Jonah chapters one through four, it would involve something. It would have meant this. Jonah had to later go about telling this entire tale, including what we see in chapter four. Jonah would have to be the one who writes this down and shares it. So here's what I believe happened. You don't have to go this route, but I I take it this way. Jonah, probably later in life, he reflects on all these things that have happened. And and he has time to see what had happened in chapters one and two of his life. And then he's seeing the results of everything that goes on in chapters three and four. And I think he has his own conversion moment happening later where he has a true deep repentance where even though he's a prophet of God, he's come to really fully and truly embrace later this mercy and grace from the Lord. Mercy and grace for his enemies like the Ninevites, but also mercy and grace for him. A sinful, angry prophet wanting mercy for himself, but not for others. I think the reason we have the story of Jonah, friends, is because he didn't bury it with himself. If he ended in chapter four in anger in the Lord, he could have gone off and done anything and kept this all to himself. And he wouldn't have exposed his flaws 
But the fact that this prophet, and as I've highlighted in chapter 2 at verse 9, the fact that he wants on both ends of this book, Jonah looks like a buffoon. But in the very center, the heart of this book, we saw in chapter 2, verse 9, where he says, but with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. And then he makes this declaration that is key for himself and key for the Ninevites. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so the truth that Jonah boldly declares from the belly of the fish echoes out in the past to himself and in the future to the Ninevites and to his future self. It's a message that the Ninevites themselves will come to embrace and hope. So don't forget, church, that the city is the capital of Israel's largest enemy at the time, the Assyrians. Again, this was a violent people who would torture and torment their enemies. They would intimidate their enemies by stacking up pyramids of heads of those that they had beheaded so that when you walk by the gate, you would say, these people are a radically violent people. And so it is clear then why Jonah would have a natural disposition towards them. So Jonah, he goes into this great city. And the point is made that he couldn't just show up in the town square for one hour, one afternoon, stand on a soapbox, make a few comments, and then head home. No, just as he was in the belly of the fish for three days, he's going to be in the belly of Nineveh, having to go around for three days. And what again was the call of Jonah? To arise, go, call out against this city. It's the pattern, really, of both the old and the new. God could have shown up and gone to the Ninevites through an angel. He could have said, I want an angel to show up and declare this truth to the Ninevites. But God has always been in the business of sending human agents to do his work. He's been in the business of sending you and I. This means that people are his means by which he uses to share this coming judgment and salvation. The New Testament puts it this way in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed what he's heard from us? And then Paul makes this great comment here where he says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So Jonah's repentance here included him sharing the word. The word of God with the people whom he had every reason to believe would possibly reject him, maybe even kill him. And so in essence, at least we'll see for this moment outwardly, Jonah repents. When God told him to go, he finally goes. But amazingly to us, he's not the only one who's repenting in this book, in this chapter. And so we also want to see the Ninevites' repentance. And this is carrying us from verse 4 through 9. Look at verse 4 again with me. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, he's only a day's journey in. Did you see that? He's 
it's, it's supposed to take three days for him to go about and declaring all this. He, he only has to make it one day's journey into the city. And amazingly, they're already starting to turn to God. Do you see this? The message is 40 days, 40 days from now, judgment is coming. This city is going to be crumbling, collapsing, overrun, destroyed by God. Why 40? Why not 30? Why not 50? Well, you know, I think many of you know, 40 is a key number, especially in the Old Testament. It's a number that always is in connection with judgment, isn't it? So it rained 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, the, The Hebrews, they're out in the wilderness. And because they tested God and didn't believe him in judgment, the older generation dies off for, yeah, 40 years. It goes on. And this time frame of judgment, 40 days, is landed on the hearts of these people. And they've really embraced this. It, it seems to be um, from verse 5 that what we've come to, this response, is a summary. Now, think of it this way. The newspaper headline reads verse 5. And then we go back with verses 6 through 9 to kind of unpack the details. So this is not necessarily chronological. But the headline of the newspaper would read like this. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, how on earth did that really come about? Well, let's now, you can then turn to verse 6 to see this. And it will unpack how it all comes about. Jonah is in town. Often, as a prophet may come to a town, they would, might, they would be brought before the kings. So as he enters in, he's only a day's in. And, and you could imagine somebody going, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're saying what? We're going to be judged in 40 days? Hold on. I'm going to go get the king. And so they go before the king, and the king's hearing this. Wait a sec, is this, could this be true? And then brings Jonah before the king, where he could d- declare what is about to be happen. Now, when a prophet would go before a king, they would be weighed, and then they would either be believed or dismissed or decapitated. And here is the shock to us in verse 6. The word of the Lord reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne And he removed his robe and he covered himself with sackcloth and he sat in the ashes. This is genuine. This is real. To put on this sackcloth, this rough material that was made of goat skin, it was culturally how you mourned. You know, we have our own ways of mourning and showing that we are mourning here. If you go to a funeral, you may dress up in darker clothing. Typically, historically, it's been black, although that's kind of even changing now. But, but it was a way of outwardly showing that inwardly you are grieved, you're mourning, and outwardly you are also showing it by the clothes that you wear. And so that people knew that sincerely, deep down inside, you are, you're grieving. Well, here, by the sackcloth and by sitting in the ashes, it was a way of showing... Not just inwardly, but outwardly, the whole totality of you, as you cease from food, you're fasting, you are sincere in repentance. And here this is not that the Ninevites have come to this place where they've gone, well, maybe we've sort of messed up by being such a violent people. Maybe we've, you know, uh, not done the best. And so we're kind of sorry about that. No, this seems to be a repentance that is on a shocking level because 
the type of, of grief that leaves you in a place where you're just going to outwardly say, well, I'm sorry, didn't mean to do that, sorry. No, here, this grief is one that led to both a change of position and an inward change of position. It leads them to being spared eventually. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, where he says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief, it leads, it produces death. Now, now the king, he issues a law. The king hears this, rips his clothes, puts on uh, the sackcloth, he's sitting in the ashes, and he's going to issue an edict. He's going to issue a proclamation, a law that's going to go out. This would have taken a little bit of time to, to go out, but sure enough, when all is said and done, everyone is wearing sackcloth. Even the livestock, I don't know if you see this, even the livestock join in repentance. This is amazing. It's incredible. The picture is from the top down, and how far down? To the animals. 100% total repentance. Now, no, you're like me. You're thinking, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just doing this to kind of get off the hook and, and, and they're just hedging their bets. Maybe this whole thing about God is just a farce. Maybe it's real. I don't know. But let's just go through the motions anyways. That's what you might be thinking. That's what I was thinking. Not true. Look at verse five. Verse five, the people of Nineveh believed God. Do you see that? The people of Nineveh believed God. And so they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Could you imagine right now, picture how wild this would be if the people of Gaza right now believed in Jesus. Do you see how shocking that would be? If they put down their guns and they began to go get baptized and take communion, and praise God. Do you see how shocking this would be? Look at verse 8, the second half of verse 8. This is how sincere they really were. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So it's not like, let's, let's kind of do an outward show. They're saying, no, no, no. Let us all turn from our wicked ways. Now, where on earth does a pagan king who issues an edict like this where does he get the idea to go about doing this? I mean, for one, he believes the Lord is real. And two, that the Lord has the power to actually destroy their whole city. And that there is a hope in, in, in verse eight, let everyone turn from his evil way and from his violence that is in his hands. And then look at verse nine, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Where does a pagan king get an idea like that? A pagan king, a king who says, take no prisoners, pile up their heads in a pyramid by the city gates. Where does this guy get the idea that there could be such thing as grace with God? Well, the sermon that Jonah preaches is what? 40 days and Nineveh shall be overturned. Yet, I think that there is more to that sermon. Where you don't see any grace or mercy in 40 days and, and Nineveh shall be overturned. No, uh, something else must be going on here. And I think that we're not seeing it until we really get to Jesus, where Jesus mentions Jonah. J Jesus calls Jonah a what? He says, Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites. 
Not just he preached a message to the Ninevites, Jonah himself was a sign. And if you were to read that sign, what does that sign read to you when you look at Jonah? A rebellious prophet, given amazing grace. So when they look at Jonah the sign, they're reading rebellion, but repentance, and then grace, mercy given to this one. And so you could see in their minds, they're going, wait a sec here. I, if somehow this prophet has been given this uh, grace, this rebellious prophet who the Lord should just strike down dead has been given this grace, maybe there's grace for us too. And, and, and I'm sure that when they actually talked with Jonah, he would have had a lot to tell them about, look, here's how this works. Here's how this worked in my life. You can see all that has happened. And if God could use a storm of judgment to come upon his own prophet, make the storm instantly cease, have a whale swallow up Jonah, bring him to the shore and give him a second chance. I wonder if the God of second chances could possibly bring us that sort of mercy and grace. And so then you go back to verse nine again and you say, aha, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And Christians, if God is merciful with Israel, if God is merciful with Nineveh, and if God is merciful with a rebellious prophet like Jonah, surely, surely he can be merciful with our community should they come to hear from us the warning that one day this entire world will be overturned. If our community hears from us, judgment is coming. Um, if they respond to hearing what we are saying, that if they would turn from the destruction that is coming and live in light of the grace that Christ has brought, and that if they live in light of that, that destruction will not fall on those who believe like the Ninevites and repent like the Ninevites. And so if you're with us this morning, my job is to be like Jonah to you this morning. Because one day in judgment, you, you will be there and I will be there. And one day in judgment, there's going to be a call on your life. Did you hear what Thomas said when he warned you of the judgment to come? And did you, like all Christians who are willing to say, I, I have fallen short, did you turn from your rebellion? Did you trust in Christ? Not perfectly, but walk then in steps to say, Lord, let this grace that was for the Ninevites, let this grace that was for Jonah, let that be grace that will be for me. And, and if that's you this morning, I just want you to know, friend, it may be 40 days, it might be 40 years, but judgment is coming. And so if you have yet to receive this mercy, receive this grace, I would love to talk with you after service. Would you please talk with a fellow Christian here or with myself? We come out of an era where sadly a large portion of the 20th century American Christianity, it was a form where one does not need to repent. What much of American Christianity has told us is that you just need Jesus to be your savior. You don't really need him to be your Lord. Uh, Jesus is just a, a get into heaven sort of card or a get out of jail free card. And therefore, you just need to make a decision for Jesus today. 
You just need to sort of tip your hat like, yeah, I kind of like Jesus more than I don't like him. And somehow Jesus will say, all right, I'm good with you too. Um, it is nice, but not necessary to actually have your heart changed. And therefore, you just need to make a decision for him. It is nice, not necessary to actually have um, a real deep down change inside you. But friends, what are we seeing here in the book of Jonah? Real repentance comes with real faith, believing in God. And another way to put it is that real faith and a real decision to believe in God comes with real change in our actions. Our repentance cannot be half-baked. Let me remind you, Martin Luther said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of the believer would be one of repentance. Friends, the main thing we see in chapter three here is that God will be merciful. God will be merciful with those who hear the word, believe it, and repent. And and you and I, I have to say, we're in a season where this doesn't happen a whole lot. I've been greatly encouraged by this book that um, Don Carson wrote about his father called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. Um, and, and, and as he writes in it, he's talking about his father who's in, in uh, the 50s and 60s in a church in Canada and Protestant churches in Canada and, and this time especially on the eastern half of the, of the nation. They, they were very small. We're talking 17 people on a Sunday morning. We're talking a mega church is like 30 people on a Sunday morning. And his father during the 50s and 60s was faithful and just kept preaching the word and kept preaching the word. And very few people came to believe and repent. Very few people. But he just was faithful, just kept preaching the word about Jesus and the gospel. And then the 70s came and there was a massive inpouring of believers. The churches swelled to 100 and 120 to 200 and more. And we just need to remember that even though very few people may come at this point in time, You and I, even though we're tempted to pull back, we just need to be faithful, continuing to tell our neighbors, to tell our family, to tell our friends. Because one day, maybe this church will be busting at the seams, swelling. But meanwhile, we're just going to be faithful, continuing to declare grace in Jesus Christ and in none other. That's it. That's all we have. And one day God may pour on this community. One day these people walking up and down the halls or the the rows of Thriftway may come and say, I need this grace that was given to the Ninevites. I need this grace that's given through Jesus Christ. And we now turn to see from Jonah's repentance, the Ninevites' repentance. I want to close by looking briefly at God's repentance at verse 10. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, a normal thought for you to have is this thought. God does not repent. (laughs) Repentance is what sinners do. And God is not a sinner, so therefore God does not repent. And if you have that thought this morning, you are 100% correct. You would be totally correct. But if you can humor me me for just a moment, and and think of this in terms of doing a 180. You were heading this direction, and then you did a 180, and now you're turning away from where you were headed. Uh, This is what is going on here. While the King James Version does say, if you read that version, it does say, God repented. Here, the, the better translation for our understanding is relenting. 
This means that through mercy, God is giving up his position of anger and judgment towards someone. What are the facts? God was marching towards the city of Nineveh to destroy it. Why? It's clear that their evil had come up before the Lord. And now that they had left their evil and violent ways and were repentant, God's decision to destroy the city would turn. Does this mean that God changes his mind like you and I change our mind? Responding to the circumstances we face day to day. Well, if this happens, then I got to do this. And if that happens, I got to do this over here. No, don't make the mistake thinking that these types of passages leave us open to what is called open theism. That view that God is not truly all-knowing. It is not as though God is always responding to the situations of earth saying, well, boy, I, I didn't see that one coming. Now that these folks did this, I'm, I'm going to have to go about this whole thing a different way. That's not how it is with the Lord. Many passages make this clear. For example, Psalm 19. Many are the plans of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Isaiah 46. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Or as we recently heard in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, in him, meaning Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Scripture is clear. All that God plans will come to pass including, ironically, sending a disobedient prophet to an evil people so that they will repent, turning from their evil way. And therefore, God will turn from bringing their destruction. All that God plans will come to pass, including sending an obedient priest, prophet, and king, his own son, so that those who believe and repent will also not face destruction. These words we hear In the very, very beginning are this. The day that you eat of the tree, you shall die. Judgment is coming. You will not live. And we all in our own way have gone about doing exactly that. The judgment was the day you eat of it, you will die. Not just physically, but eventually spiritually. Yet if you turn to Christ, trusting in him, living in godly repentance, the promise is that the mercy of God for the Ninevites that they had a small taste of, is going to be the mercy that you and I just don't taste. We swim in it. We're drowning in this mercy of God. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says, Jesus saved us not because of works done in us by righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Friend, would you live today in repentance? Would you live today in this repentance, in godly repentance? When our Lord and Master... Jesus Christ said, repent, Matthew 4, verse 17. He willed that the entire life of believers would be one of repentance. Let me close again with the words of Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Would you pray with me? Father, we believe you. Uh, We believe that we deserve to be overthrown. And we repent asking that through Christ, you would show us mercy. 
same mercy that the apostles embraced, the same forgiveness of sins that the early church clung to, uh, the freedom from guilt, the freedom from the burden to feel the weight of living perfectly and knowing that one cannot. Would you relieve that mountain of weight off our shoulders this morning? Would we walk not in grudgingly repentant hearts, but with joyful repentant hearts who feel light as a feather because of the grace of Christ? Would that be ours this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.